can't fit the duck in the box. Right? You can't fit the duck in the box. Well, good morning. My name is Paul. Uh, I am one of the co-lead pastors with my wife, Pastor Britta. Uh, and it is good to be with you. Uh, Pastor Britta talked about last week. We were on vacation for a couple weeks. Uh, and we got back a couple weeks ago. Uh, and as you get back home, right, you kind of start to reacclimate to life. And so you... Uh, you know, get back into the rhythms of, of kind of the things at home, the things at work, all this kind of stuff. And so uh, we pulled into our house. We came back a, from a couple weeks. Uh, and our yard had kind of decided to do its own thing a little bit, right? Uh, now, uh, most Saturdays uh, from the end or the early part of spring until about the end of fall, we are attending and tending to our yard. Now, it's not a, a big secret. Uh, Pastor and Britta and I do not exactly have green thumbs. Uh, We are the opposite of green thumbs. We have absolutely no thumbs when it comes uh, to gardening. Uh, So we often, unfortunately, kill things. But thankfully, uh, the person who or people who lived in the house before us have done an incredible job of landscaping our yard. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And thankfully, uh, it's mature landscaping. So we just get to attend to the things that are there. We don't have to get them to grow because we don't do a great job of that. But uh, we can attend to those things, right? And so when we got back from vacation, uh, we kind of pulled in. And along the side yard... Uh, these weeds just decided we're going to grow. And I mean, I'm not joking. I mean, okay, not quite this tall, but you know, they were very, very tall weeds. Uh, and there was a, you know, the fish was this big. Uh, so, and then in the uh, front yard, we have a bush. In the backyard, we have a tree and the branches just went, right? They, I mean, they exploded in like all kinds of directions. It was just wild and crazy. And so, uh, so the Saturday after we got back from vacation, we did our kind of regular rhythm of, okay, it's time to kind of trim back. And so I had a number of hours of a chance to kind of be doing this and right mowing the grass and kind of getting everything kind of back in under uh, control. And uh, perhaps because I was looking for uh, some purpose behind all the significant amount of work I was putting into the yard, uh, I was trying to start to think about this. And I had this realization, like, I am going to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> right? Like, no matter what I do, it's going to keep coming back. Like, these bushes are going to every time we leave. I can't control creation, right? I can't whisper to the bush, hey, we'll be back in two weeks, knock off the growing, right? It doesn't work that way. My role, my job is to attend or to tend to the yard, but I don't control the growth, right? And if for some reason, Pastor Bert and I never returned to the house or nobody went back to the house, wildlife would just take over, right? It would just absolutely, like weeds would be everywhere, the trees, you know, all, every which way. Creation would just explode with life. And it got me thinking, again, I had many hours of doing this to be thinking about this kind of thing. It got me thinking about the dynamic and the relationship that exists between ourselves as humans, what we can do in our human control versus the ways of God, right? Thinking about the ways of God, these things that God has set in motion with creation, I can kind of maintain or I can tend to or care for creation, but I can't control it. God has hardwired into like life that it's just going to be wild and expansive and grow. And we as humans, we like to have control. We like things to be manicured and well-kept and edged lawns and, you know, very nicely short grass. We like to have that. But that's really just kind of like a a, a facade, right? As if I have control over the the garden that's there, right? It's, It's, I can't do anything other than attend to it. And so this dynamic between kind of uh, human effort or worldly power, however insignificant it may be, uh, versus God and the ways of God is this dynamic I want us to think about. How sometimes we think we have this kind of like 
false image that if I could just cut off those branches, then the bush is just going to stay and I now have control. But in fact, my role is not to control, but to attend, to care, to steward. And God is the one who's doing this wild and expansive growth that I, you, you can't ever know, right? Like it just, pff, it's just going to go, okay? So I want us to hold that relationship, the ways of the world in kind of contrast to the ways of God. This summer, we've been working through uh, the book of Acts and exploring the story of the ever-expanding kingdom of God. And I, I want to just reiterate my gratitude while we were gone. Uh, Pastor Scott and Lindsay preached a couple sermons continuing this trajectory, continuing this story. Uh, Pastor Scott, he spoke about and preached about a Philip and the Ethiopian. And this story that kind of continues to open up your eyes to someone that you might not expect, right? That's kind of this wild growth of like, I wouldn't have expected this kind of interaction to happen. So, you know, this invitation that Pastor Scott extended to us, why, why shouldn't he be baptized? And then Lindsay, she kind of talked about this conversion of one of the most kind of prominent leaders against the early Jesus followers, right? Paul, this person who was persecuting the early church. And God opens up his eyes in this kind of wild and expansive growth. He now becomes kind of the central character to extending the good news of the kingdom. Right? And we're actually, this morning's story is kind of the, the hinge point. We kind of finalize with Peter and the kind of early church being with the Jewish people. And we're now going to move all into Paul. That's all like the rest of the summer. The rest of the book is Acts. It's all Paul kind of extending the kingdom of God. And then last week, Pastor Britta, she preached on uh, Peter and Cornelius. This has become one of my favorite stories in scripture, especially as it relates to the Bible and to the church. Right? Because it's this ever-expanding, I love the, the phrase she used, the expansion of Peter's known universe. Right, That Peter had this idea, these, these laws and this regulation and this religious kind of framework to hold his understanding of his relationship with God. And then Peter has this vision and Cornelius has this vision and it's this opening up, it's this expansion of Peter's known universe. And so this morning's story in Acts chapter 12 is kind of the, the final point to kind of make an exclamation mark on this trajectory, right? This ever-expanding kind of expansive and wildness of the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you uh, to turn to Acts chapter 12. Uh, we'll be getting this uh, story, this story again, that's setting up uh, this relationship between worldly power the ways and the efforts that we have, how we think we can have control, and the kingdom of God, the ways of God. So it's this dynamic between the ways of people or the ways of the world versus the ways of God. Acts chapter 12, if you have a Bible, I do encourage you, um, especially now, we're going to start taking off like a, a locomotive. And so there's going to be a bunch more of the passage that it might be helpful to kind of see in context uh, how the Bible has been written. So if you have a physical Bible, I encourage you to bring it with you to kind of have reference. If not, the words will be on the screen and you'll have it in the, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you'd prefer to read that way. But Acts chapter 12, uh, will begin in verse one, thinking about this dynamic, this relationship between worldly power or worldly effort and the ways of God, the ways of the kingdom. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. 
The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries to guard at the entrance. Talk about high security. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel had left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord Jesus has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And he left for another place. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, as we continue to unpack and kind of uh, open up this passage, I want you to, again, hold in your mind this relationship, this dynamic between the ways of humanity, the ways of the world, and the ways of God. And think about that contrast. Think about those two things. Now, I often do this, and I think it's important, is giving a little bit of background or context to what's happening because it helps to open up the story for us. And uh, it is a little bit confusing because here we hear about King Herod. Now, King Herod is talked about a number of different times throughout the Bible, but there's a bunch of different King Herods, but there's not really any change in saying King Herod. It's just always King Herod. So uh, there was a King Herod back at the very beginning of the uh, New Testament called Herod the Great. And this Herod was super interested in having control. He wanted to be in power. He wanted to control everything. And so he had a son, Herod Antipas, who's the Herod that Jesus talks to when he's on trial. And here is yet another Herod. And this is a grandson of Herod the Great. And this Herod is Herod Agrippa I, right? So it's like, hello, my name is Herod. Meet my son, Herod, and my grandson, Herod, right? It's uh, talk about egocentricism, but really that is actually kind of the point, right? The whole point was as a king and as a leader, I want to exert my power and my authority. And so I'm going to keep naming my next of kin, my name, so that my name continues from generation to generation. That was very intentional, okay? So you have this like power grasping, right? I want to control things. But here we have this kind of third Herod, Herod Agrippa I. So I might call him King Agrippa just for kind of sake of clarity, right? So King Agrippa, he's this other king, and all of these kings, these King Herods, are literally representatives of Rome. They are representatives of the empire. And they have been set up to control and to be kings over the region of Judea which is where a lot of the Jewish people were, which means they were literally the king of the Jews. So this Herod line, Herod, my son, Herod, my grandson, Herod, they're all 
king of the Jews. So you have this kind of power dynamic that's going on. Now, King Agrippa, King Herod that's talked about here, King Agrippa I, he wants to keep his power. He wants to have control over the people. But he has a better relationship with the Jewish people, and he wants to maintain that relationship. So he's going to do everything that he can in his worldly power to maintain control, to have influence, to have his power and authority continue. And so what he wants to do is he wants to make the Jewish people happy. So he starts to test the waters, right? Because uh, the early Jesus movement are all Jewish people, right? But they're starting to kind of make some noise. People are starting to pay attention. The, the growth of the early church is rapidly expanding. And so King Agrippa's like, this isn't good for me. I want to have my power, my control. I want to get things back in line. But he's not quite sure if is this going to make the Jewish people happy or not so happy. So he goes after a leader in the church, but not the main leader. He goes after one of the 12 apostles, James, the brother of John, right? So kind of a prominent leader in the early church, but not the lead leader, which is Peter. And it says that he brings James and he has him executed. And it says that the Jewish people think it's a great idea, right? Because remember last week, Pastor Britta talked about Peter and Cornelius. And it says that the, the people that Peter was describing this experience to of, of beating with Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, it was accepted. They said, great, but they're not going to sit well with it. Because the Jewish people, this is now kind of calling into question their power and their authority. So we don't want this to keep going, right? This is, this is now getting in the way of our power and our authority. And so when Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa, finds out that people are like, this is great that they killed James. He's like, I'm going for the jugular, right? I'm going to the top and I will get Peter. And I will capture Peter, who is the representative of the church, Right? And so you have King Agrippa, who's this representative, is characteristic of the empire, quite literally a representative of the Roman Empire. And you have Peter, who's set up as the representative of the church, who represents the kingdom of God. Empire versus kingdom. Do you see this dynamic that's being created? And so what happens then is it says that King Agrippa, King Herod, he has Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, he has Peter put in prison. Now, when prison comes up in Scripture... It is used as a tool of the empire. And it's used as a tool of the empire to control, to contain, to cut off, to keep something from happening, to keep things from spreading. Someone else's power is getting in the way of my power and my influence, so I'm going to use prison to cut them off. And so when you have this dynamic, right, the dynamic of the empire versus the dynamic of the kingdom, you have these two realities that are standing in direct contrast. And that's exactly what this passage is about. It's kind of, I didn't really get that the first time I read this, but this passage is really talking about the contrast between empire and kingdom. And so prison is used as this tool to cut off, to contain, to control, to keep power in the hands of the powerful, in the elite. Any system or structure that is used to maintain power of those in control right, is in exact opposition of the kingdom. Any system or structure that uses uh, power to control and to dehumanize and to cut off people is in a direct opposition of the kingdom of God. It's, it's anti the gospel, right? The gospel which says open up and continue to expand and the least of these would be brought up. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us and tells those who seek to follow Jesus to care for the least of these, those who clothe the naked, feed the hungry, visit the prisoner. 
Right? This is a call from Scripture that this any system or structure that stands in direct opposition of people for the sake of power is going to stand in opposition of the kingdom. Now, before we uh, kind of move on with the narrative, I just want to take a moment to briefly pause about how, uh, what kind of parallels there might be in our own society and in our own life. Growing up, uh, I played games like cops and robbers, right, like all the time. And the end of that game, right, was always that you put the bad guys in jail. Like that was just always the end goal. All the kind of games that I played, the shows that I watched, right, prison is always held up as where the bad guys go. That's what prison is, right? It's to put the bad guys away. There's a couple things about that that I think are actually really problematic. First of all, that was like the end of the story, right? Like the end of the story is in the end of the game, the prisoner's in jail, now it's done. Well, there's still a person, right, that's been put in that place. So there's still a human. And so there's this like dehumanization that happens when we don't see that person. We don't hear their story. We don't, we, it's as if we think that the story of God or the image of God has left that person, but it hasn't. God's story is still active and alive in the life of those people, right? But the narrative I heard as a kid was like, then that's the end of the story. The other thing about uh, this kind of the problematic nature of this is that I just always assumed that prison was the place that you go if you did something wrong or like if you broke a law, right? And it's kind of a shocker. There's a whole lot less like gem thieves in prison than I was led to believe as a kid, right? Like all these, like they stole the big gem and now they're in prison, right? Like that was always a thing. But here in scripture, the exact opposite is true. Peter hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any law. What he's done is he's been a threat to those in power. And so he's placed in prison over and over and over and over again in the Bible. People are placed, the early Jesus followers are placed in prison for doing nothing wrong, but that they're kind of competing against the power of the empire. Right? They haven't done anything to be deserving to be there. They're there, they're contained because they're getting in the way of the power. You see the pretty significant difference of how that reality functions? And so uh, it's just this invitation, I think, for us. It's an invitation for me, at least, to kind of reimagine what have I perhaps misunderstood in our own system, in our own society, for how the dynamic between these things functions. Like, what, what, is there something for me to learn here? Now, I've talked about him a number of times because I greatly admire his leadership and his voice. Uh, Dominique Gilliard is uh, someone who works for our denomination, uh, who works for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Department. And he is just absolutely brilliant. I mean, he is, it's hard sometimes to talk with him because he's like going a million miles in front where I understand. But he's so brilliant. And he wrote, uh, he's written a number of books, but the first book that he wrote that I think is a good invitation for us uh, is this book called Rethinking Incarceration. Now, this book, I think, is really important because even the title is this invitation, right? It's to, to reimagine perhaps some of the preconceived notions I have about what I thought prison was or what, how the system or the structure works or how it's used to contain or control. Now, I will admit this is not a uh, light book, right? He is very, very smart. And there is a lot of really significant and heavy content in this book. But I do think it's a really important book because I think it's something that opens up our eyes to asking this question, what is it we have to learn from what we see here with the prison being used as a tool of the empire? How does that correlate in our own life and in our own society? And so just really briefly, I want to read you this quote from uh, Dominique's book. 
Uh, what I love about it is it's this invitation to reimagine something, to rethink the ways we've understood things. And he centers it on our relationship with God. So what Dominique says is, while God's story sometimes includes punishment, isolation, and harsh consequences, God's justice moves towards restoration, reintegration, and redemption. God's justice is inherently connected to healing the harmed, restoring what has been lost, and reconciling those who are estranged from God and the community. God's heart and justice are inherently restorative. God's heart and justice are inherently restorative. You see, this invitation that Dominique invites us to is thinking of the correlation between empire and kingdom and how God's justice and God's heart are inherently restorative about bringing people in and about restoring and reconciling relationships. Now, we certainly don't have enough time to unpack, like, there is a series upon series about kind of the theology behind prison and what do we do and how do we engage these things. So we're not going to spend any more time now. But I do want to encourage you, uh, if there's something shimmering here for you, uh, if you have a holy curiosity about this, or perhaps this makes you uncomfortable, and there's like, hmm, this doesn't sit quite right with me. I want to encourage you to read this book. And if you want to read this book, come talk to me. I will gladly get you a copy and we can have conversations because I think this is a, not an easy, it's a really hard and heavy topic, but it's an important one for us to engage because Jesus calls us to visit the prisoner, to be engaged in these systems and these structures that kind of cut people off. So I just want to encourage you, if that shimmers at all, please talk to me. I'd love to have further conversation. Even if you're uncomfortable, you disagree. Let's have conversations together. So there's kind of that brief pause, but what Dominique points to is this dynamic that exists between these two realities, right? You have the empire, who's the representative, is King Agrippa, King Herod, and then you have the kingdom of God, which the heart of God and justice always moves towards restoration, towards reconciliation, towards wholeness, towards shalom. And you have Peter as the representative of the kingdom of God, empire kind of held up against the kingdom, right? Empire and the kingdom. And so uh, what's so interesting about this story uh, is you have uh, King Agrippa, and he's really trying to kind of maintain his power and his control. And he's heard that Peter has, in fact, escaped prison once before. So what does he do? He throws everything he's got at Peter, right? Like typically you'd have like a guard or two kind of looking over a prison to, you know, make sure maybe someone's in the cell. It says he has four legions of four soldiers. He has 16 people that he set up to keep Peter in prison. He's not letting him escape again. He's doing everything he can to control and to cut off and to stop this potential threat to his leadership. And it says that he's chained to two people in the door, like inside the cell, and then there's a couple other people outside the cell, and then there's an iron, like he's throwing everything he has at God, right? Everything that he can do. And so you have the empire kind of getting at the kingdom of God and what's going to happen with the kingdom of God. Now, what I love about scripture is it kind of has these little secrets kind of planted in the original language that you don't often see. So at the very beginning, it says that King Agrippa, when he's going to kind of capture those who are the early church, it literally translates that he's trying to lay harmful hands on the early followers. Isn't that such a powerful image that he's literally trying to grasp, he's trying to grip, he's trying to control the early church. He's trying to lay hostile hands on the followers of Jesus. In direct contrast, what happens? Peter is chained up, he's behind all these walls, he's with all these soldiers, and it says an angel of the Lord appears and kind of hits him on the side, says, get up, and with a word, the chains fall off his hands. Do you see the difference in that imagery? 
right? King Agrippa is gripping at everything he can. He's just trying to control and maintain to lay harmful hands. But the Spirit of God, the angel of God appears and the chains just fall off with a word. Look at the difference in the posture between the hands. And it says that as they fall off his hands, he walks past one set of guards. Everybody, King Agrippa, trying to have control. He walks past one set, walks past another set. The iron door that should be impenetrable swings open. And he's outside completely freed. You see, this is the contrast between empire and kingdom. The empire in in worldly control tries to maintain its tight grip, its grasp on its power. And it wants its authority, and so it's going to do everything it can to control. And the ways of God, the ways of the kingdom, are to open up and to release and to be freed. You see, God is in the business of breaking chains, of releasing bonds, of setting the prisoner free. This is the way of the kingdom. And this kingdom is wild and expansive, right? You can't cut off the hedge. King Agrippa is just hacking at the hedges, trying to maintain control over the bush, but he can't fit the duck in the box. It doesn't work. It's way too big. It's way too wild. It's way too expansive. The kingdom of God is wild and expansive, and it cannot be contained. There can be no limiting God. That is the good news, the gospel message of this story. It's a powerful invitation for us that the kingdom of God is wild and expansive. It goes beyond. It's just going to do this, and we can't control when it's going to. It's wild and expansive. It can't be contained. There can be no limiting God. And I'm going to kind of roll us through the rest of the story pretty quickly to kind of reemphasize this point, this idea of the kingdom of God just being wild and expansive. It can't be controlled. You see, what happens is Peter's now outside. He's just, he's done. He's freed. He's been released from captivity. And he goes to the door where the people are praying and he knocks. And it says that Rhoda comes and she's so excited, she leaves him outside. What? Like he's there, but she leaves him outside. Now, admittedly, this is humor. Like Luke is trying to make a joke here. It is a little bit dry, but they are in the desert. So (laughs) I had to throw in a dad joke because the scripture jokes are pretty in parallel. Anyways, so it's kind of dry humor, right? It's not exactly a knee slapper, but Luke does use this humor to kind of diffuse an idea and actually invite us into something that's pretty, at least to me, it's like, whew. Right? Sometimes when things are funny, we kind of look back and like, oh, that's funny. And then, oh, ouch. And so you have Rhoda who's knocking and she runs and tells the people as they're praying. And it got me thinking about how often do I, do we, do people who are religious and seek to be following of Jesus, how often do we leave Peter knocking? How often do we leave the kingdom of God knocking on the door because we're engaged in kind of religious piety and prayer? How often do we miss the invitation to open the door to who's knocking for us because we think we're doing the right thing? Ooh, funny to start with, but wow, that kind of cuts deep. And then this other kind of humor piece that Luke puts in is he says uh, that they said, oh, you must be crazy. They call her mad. And then, uh, and then they say, oh, it's uh, like it must be his angel. And that should be kind of, again, very dry humor, but humorous to us because an angel did actually appear But the angel wasn't Peter's angel. It was an angel that released Peter and miraculously had him escape from prison a second time. And it got me thinking again about this kind of poignancy that Luke is using humor for. How often 
do I rationalize away the miracles of God because I don't think they're possible? When the kingdom of God is literally knocking at the door outside and I explain it away, I rationalize it away. Right? It's, it's not exactly the same, but it's actually another form of trying to control. Right? Well, God couldn't do that. God's already released Peter from prison once. There's no way he could do it again. How am I limiting and controlling God? How am I trying to put the duck in the box when it clearly doesn't fit? He's right outside. And then I love this. What happens is kind of the commotion settles down and they finally actually let Peter in. And Peter comes in and there's all this commotion, right? I'm sure people are happy and laughing and excited and joyful. And what happens? It says, Peter lifts a hand and there's silence. Do you see the continuation of that metaphor? Remember who's in control. A hand that literally moments ago had a shackle on it is now entirely freed. The use of Peter's hand is a reminder. Remember who's in control. Remember who's in charge. This isn't about you. It's not about what you can maintain or how you can understand. Remember who's in control. And then this is just fascinating to me. Then it says Peter leaves. That's the end of the story. Right? He's gone. We don't hear about him again. He's just gone. The whole thing has been building up to this huge narrative of like, okay, Peter's going to be released from prison. Here he is, the leader of the church. See ya. He's gone. What? And I think this actually highlights and it puts an exclamation mark on this point of the idea between the kingdom of God and the empire, because certainly this story is about Peter, but it's about so much more than Peter. It's about the ever-expanding way of understanding our known universe. It's opening up our eyes to see that, yes, it's about Peter, but really it's the dynamic between empire and kingdom. And it kind of sets up this kind of final piece. It's this epilogue. There's this epilogue now that kind of gets in uh, to the piece. And it's like, so if you've seen a Marvel movie, there's an after credits scene, right? In the after credits scene, it sets up what the next movie is going to be about. And so there's this like after credit scene here in the story. And what happens is, so Peter's, you know, goes, disappears, he's gone. And uh, King Agrippa, who's been gripping because he wants the power and control, he's furious because it's like he's, his pride is just dashed. And so it says he kills everybody. He kills all the guards that were there. And then there's this other conflict, and he goes down to kind of figure out this conflict. And it says he puts on his royal regalia and like kind of puffing up himself again, like I'm going to be a king. I'm going to maintain control even if I can't control these early Jesus followers. And it says, they say to him, it's as if you're the voice of God. Right? It's setting up this exact parallel between empire and kingdom. It's as if the empire is God. What happens? He falls dead. Could there be a finer point on this contrast? Right? Everything that King Agrippa was trying to do, he's trying to grip and control and maintain power. And so then he's hurt because he cannot control God because it's too wild and too expansive. And it cuts him off and he dies. But what happens is Paul and Barnabas come on the scene and God tells them what? Lay hands and send them. Look at that prologue. It sets up the rest of the story, the way that the kingdom is wild and expansive and cannot be contained. Right? Because King Agrippa, he's doing everything he can to lay 
hostile hands, but God's kingdom is defined by freeing people from their shackles. And with a hand gesture, he silences the people to remind them of the power of who is in control. And from there, Agrippa just dies as a representative of the empire. The empire stands no chance against God. And instead, God calls the empire to be set aside and to lay holy hands on Paul and Barnabas to further the kingdom of God. Whoa. God's kingdom is so much more wild and expansive than we could ever comprehend. And there can be no limiting God. And our call, our call is to steward the wild and expansive life that God puts before us. Right? We can't fit the duck in the box. We don't get to set the boundary lines. We don't get to, you know, as many times as we cut off those branches, they're just going to keep growing back. But our call is to steward to care for, to be in relationship with the wild and expansive life that God puts before us. And so kind of the absurd proclamation we make when we come to this table is that we're seeking to actually do this, to follow Jesus together, to be in relationship with one another, moving towards reconciliation and restoration in ways we can't control that are wild at times, that are way beyond us, the expansion of our known universe, but that is, is in line with what God is doing. And so as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, would you go to God with me in prayer? Lord God, the words, Jesus is king, come easily to our lips. Yet we often fail to grasp the significance of what they mean for us. As we come to your table, give us a vision of your kingdom with boundaries and borders that we don't define and that continues to expand to invite all who would come to have a seat at your table. Lead us, O oh God to steward the expansive and sometimes wild life you have put before us. Through Jesus, with Jesus, in Jesus, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours now and forever. Amen.